Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Sponsored by LionRock.life. It's a hard thing when you've been able to rely on your brain to make decisions, to set goals. Anything I set my mind to, if I was really, really, really wanted it, you know, I had the work ethic to do it. And when it came to alcohol, like I would make a decision every morning. I'm I'm not drinking today. And then about three or four o'clock that same day, I felt like I was starting to try to change my mind. Like, I mean, that was probably an overreaction. Only in retrospect can I see my mind, my willpower, making up my mind, making a commitment was of absolutely no avail. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Marsha Stone. Marsha grew up in Southern Georgia to a family that struggled with generational alcoholism. Marsha eventually married her best drinking buddy and quickly had three kids. Then just as quickly, she was alone. The responsibility of raising them fell squarely on her shoulders and the fear of how she would care for them left her with many sleepless nights. She decided she wanted to go to law school. Her three young kids and their situation seemed to guarantee that she would have a chance to get her school paid for. And sure enough, it did. In law school, her alcoholism took off, but she told herself it was all reasonable. Anyone in her difficult situation would do the same thing. The alcohol started to cause her to slip near the end of her education, but she was able to keep it together just long enough to graduate. Then came a law career that was speckled with heavy drinking and even saw her sneaking cocaine into the courtroom before finally getting sober in 2008. Since then, Marsha has found success in addiction recovery as one of the few female CEOs in the industry. In 2023, she founded Foundation Stone, a network of boutique-focused programs for individuals and their families struggling with mental health, substance use disorder, and co-occurring disorders across the U.S. Their first treatment center, MEND, opened in Austin this spring. You guys are going to love this. Marsha and I had such a great conversation where we related to so many of the feelings that come up in recovery when trying to get into recovery and feeling like maybe we are terminally unique. Marsha's experience with her children getting into recovery and having the language to help and ask is incredible. Her blended family, her being told she doesn't look like an alcoholic, all of these incredible experiences she's had, her relapse and doing a forensic analysis on how that happened. It was just such a great conversation about recovery. Without further ado, I give you Marsha Stone. Let's do this. You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. How old are your, how old are your boys? Well, I have 
five children. My daughter's 32. My oldest son's 31. Then I have a 28-year-old, almost 29. Then Wyatt is, how old are you, Wyatt? 22? Yeah, you'll be 23 in October. And then Sheldon is 18. He just, he's graduated from high school. So my husband is a veterinarian and we told the boys, if you guys graduate with honors, we'll take you on a safari to Africa. And they did it, both of them. I'm excited. It's going to be a great trip. I don't know. It's just become more and more important to me to create these memories, you know, while they're still within the nuclear family, because once they start to branch out, then all of a sudden I've got to be less selfish and, you know. plan better and, and, and all those things. So, yeah, that'll be amazing. So getting into a little bit of your background. So let's start with what's your sobriety date? My sobriety date is May 6, 2008. Awesome. And how long did you try to get sober before you got that sobriety date? I first went to treatment the first time in 2002, picked up a desire chip. And for the next five-ish years, I would say that I was a member of the sort of sober community. We lived in North Carolina at the time. And I'm one of those people that I was I was doing what I thought I needed to do, going to meetings, having a sponsor, those kind of things. But I did not really understand at that point that sort of like checking the boxes in recovery wasn't going to be enough for me, that I was one of those people who actually had to have a, a spiritual experience and, and get to that place of just brokenness is the best way that that I can describe it. Basically, I stayed sober for five-ish years, and then I relapsed badly in February 2007. And I stayed that last year, February 2007 to May 2008. I was in and out of you know detoxes, in and out of treatment centers. What happened at that time was I was a lawyer in Georgia and in North Carolina, and I kept signing contracts to, you know, participate with their impaired lawyers program and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that had been going on during that whole six years. And so by the time I relapsed really badly and things, you know, they always say like your disease is doing push-ups in the parking lot or whatever. I never really believed that, but I can tell you from my own experience, you know, even those five years where I was mostly sober, I don't know, I don't have an explanation. You know, I've, I've gone back to school and worked in treatment and all that. And, and I don't know that anyone has sort of the real answer of why that is. But I do know that once I picked back up when I relapsed, it was like the wheels fell off, you know, so fast. And consequences really piled up in front of me. The, the bar associations kind of joined together and took my license. I, I, I surrendered my license for five years, which is true, but they were going to take it whether I surrendered it or not. And then my mom took temporary custody of my four biological children and my husband's ex-wife took custody of his son that we prior had had joint custody to. You have these big things that are so important to you, right? Like the custody of your children and your career. When both those things are sort of pulled, you know, the rugs pulled out from under you in a way, but I needed that to happen so that addiction could really get my attention. Alcoholism could really get my attention. Not every, I, sometimes I, I hesitate to talk about that because not everyone has to go through major consequences, but I just did. And, you know, why is that? Am I a worse alcoholic or who knows? I mean, you know, and I always say, I don't know how I got the car in the ditch, but I've got to get the car out of the ditch. Number one, going through and, and looking through genetics and family history and trauma. And there's a spectrum, right? There's all kinds of different contributors. I just am one of those people that 
I think I have like a high tolerance for pain or something because I think I would have stayed in like high functioning alcoholic for much, much longer if I hadn't had the people that were around me that loved me enough to stop to it using consequences. So there is a big genetic component for you and your family. What was your family life growing up? I know your, your father eventually gets sober, but did you see alcoholism as a kid? So the thing about it is, um, you know, I grew up in the deep South in South Georgia and my whole life, believe it or not, even in my family for generations had been riddled with alcoholism, even though it was fat and some people knew some parts of it, it just wasn't discussed. And so the messaging to me was basically like, if your uncle so-and-so loved his family, he would have shown up at a you know barbecue. And because he didn't, you know, that means that he's selfish and doesn't love his family. That was the messaging, right? And so I had this all these old ideas about basically alcoholism being a moral failure. And that meant that you, you know, didn't care about anybody or anything. And so when I started to struggle with my own relationship with alcohol, I knew that that wasn't true. I love my family dearly. You know, I loved my children and, you know, vowed to protect them in ways that I wasn't protected. And I meant those things. And, and one of the things I talk about a lot is these days in recovery, I can match my intentions with my actions. But back then, I couldn't do that. And there was this, you know, big chasm between what I wanted to do and what I intended to do and then what my actions showed. And so when I was able to kind of look at that from the perspective of my own experience, I knew that that early messaging wasn't true, but I didn't know anything else. And in my hometown, the AA meetings were for some reason at the VFW. I don't know why that was, but in my mind growing up, I thought alcoholics had something to do with veterans. I just, I knew nothing. I knew nothing. My family didn't talk about it. School didn't, you know, discuss it. We were all drinking like fish in high school. And, you know, no one thought thought that that was even alarming. Looking back, you know, the, the drinking that I was doing early on looked a lot like my friends drinking. But now I understand that alcoholism was doing something for me that I couldn't do on my own, which is to feel safe, to feel secure, to feel loved, to feel a part of. And again, all this stuff is in hindsight because it looks very normal because that's what everybody that I knew was doing, right? And then when I finally got to the point where, and one of the things I'm really grateful for is when I was the most active in my alcoholism is right before I went to treatment the first time in 2002. And I was the assistant district attorney, a female of a small town. And my aunt was the judge and my stepfather was an attorney. So it was like, you know, big fish in a really small pond. And I had a bad wreck. There was wine bottles in the back of my car and I, you know, flipped the car and I was blacked out and I was, you know, trying to get home. Anyway, all of this stuff happened and it got to the point that my family couldn't ignore it or deny it. And at the time I was so ashamed. They were ashamed. You know, it was bad. Everything about it was bad. But looking back, I'm so grateful to God that that happened that way because we had to talk about it because it was so in our face. It was so in their face. And that's when I started having conversations with my uncle who was in AA. Started learning about my grandmother's brothers who died of alcoholism. Started learning about my great-grandfather. He was extremely abusive to his children. And because I don't have the good sense to stay home and drink quietly, you know, I'm out there, guns blazing. I'm picturing (laughs) us drinking. It's very symbiotic in that. We're like Thelma and Louise, like put the top down, you know, like throw your beer can. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, although that's awful to live through and embarrassing for people that love you sometimes, 
it can no longer be ignored. And yeah, and so I stayed sober. And then in Asheville, North Carolina is where I'd moved because that's where my second husband was working. He's a veterinarian. And, and we relapsed together. And the same thing happened there as happened before. Big news. Everybody knew. I was a small town attorney. He was a veterinarian. I mean, and you have, you know, the white picket fence and the kids and in all the good schools and the, you know, Mercedes in the driveway and a pool in the backyard. And everybody's looking at you like, why are you doing this? Your life is amazing. And we give that alcoholic response, which is the truth. I don't know. I don't know. And actually, it's almost like I had to, you know, my first time around, I was sort of blaming my alcoholism on my stepfather was abusive. My mom turned her head. My first husband was active addiction and, you know, abusive and left me and da da da. Like I had the story, right? And then I get a treatment. I'm sober. I get all my kids back. I marry the man of my dreams. We have an amazing businesses. We have an amazing family. And when you get your ducks in a row, like you think they need to be in order to stay sober, and then you drink again, then it's kind of like terror, bewilderment, and despair. Despair meaning I was just as confused as everybody else about my behavior. And so then I ended up going to long-term gender-specific treatment, and my husband did as well in Texas, which is why we kind of ended up back here. He's from Texas. But it was the first time that I had really understood, like, recovery is not just an idea or going to sit in a chair in a 12-step meeting. Recovery is changing yourself from the inside out and making a decision that for the rest of your life, you're going to be on a different basis. And when I finally understood that, and I finally like started to try it out because I had no other options left, honestly, but I do like to talk about my recovery because I like to talk to people, especially that are driven, ambitious, professional, to be able to talk to people that clean up really well, really fast. And they're very convincing that they're okay because they can read the room and they have the vocabulary and all those things. Like I was dying. I was dying behind all those assets. What were some of the thoughts that you were having in that time between? So you, you get everything back, you put the life together, you, you you marry the man of your dreams, everything, you know, get the kids back. What were some of the thoughts? What did you find when you went and did a, a forensic analysis of this yeah. relapse? And I'm glad that you asked me that. Most people don't ask me that, but it's really important. And looking back, number one, I did not fully buy into the idea that I was alcoholic and powerless. I bought into the idea that I was under a lot of stress. I bought into the idea that if you had my life, you would need relief too, which may or may not be true, but I really hung my hat on that. And then I really did not believe that my disease would be advancing during periods of abstinence. And I sort of had this idea like, I've been sober for five years. I have a great husband, like nothing's going wrong here. The lights aren't getting turned off because, you know, he cashed his paycheck and went to the track or whatever. And I just really had not surrendered to my own powerlessness, my own relationship with alcohol. And I just felt, and this is, this is sort of an embarrassing thing to say, but I think most people, if they're really honest with themselves, would say this. I really felt like the rules didn't necessarily apply to me. I thought that I was unique. When they say terminally unique, it was crazy the way it happened. I was sitting in my office one day and this guy came in and asked me to 
to represent him on like a small little bar fight case or something. And I knew this guy because I, you know, didn't work for him before. I told him, you know, that'll be $500 or whatever. He said, oh, I don't have that much. You know, it's winter. Back then, like sometimes people would trade. What about, you know, I'll give you, you know, three cords of firewood for the winter or whatever. And so he said, I don't have that much cash, you know. Can can we do something on a trade? I was like, sure. I found out he was not a landscaper. He was in the import export business like that. Suddenly, the thought occurred to me that it wasn't the white powdery substance that made me feel like I can dance real cute that caused me problems. It was the booze. And that happened like so fast in my mind. And that's why I say suddenly, because I'd never had that thought before. I'd never, you know, delineated those two substances in my conscious mind. I'd never entertained doing this substance and not drinking with it. But all of a sudden, it was the best idea I'd ever had in the world because my secretary is always late for work. My husband's annoying when he asks me for the receipts every day for the debit card. You know, my kids are ungrateful. All these things happen in my mind so fast. And it's that swan song of like terminally unique and, you know, undervalued and underappreciated. All those thoughts that I guess I'd had somewhere along the way came crashing into my conscious mind. And when he offered me that substance, it's just like, you know, we say like I was without a spiritual defense. Why is that? Because I was not participating in my recovery. I was a bystander. I was, you know, a voyeur looking at what's happening in meetings that I go to, giving my sponsor the, the answer that she wants to get. You know, all that stuff, all that stuff contributed to it. But the bottom line is what was missing in my life was rigorous honesty and a real surrender and a real decision to turn my life to this thing where my my will and my life, meaning my thoughts, my will and my life, my actions over to this new way. And I had not done that. You can say you've done it. You can say you understand. You can say you're an alcoholic, especially if you're you know high functioning, like we said, right? I can parrot lots of things, but it doesn't matter what people think of you and what people think of your recovery. It doesn't matter. What matters is my relationship with myself, my relationship with honesty, my relationship with my higher power, and my willingness to continue to show up with humility. And I had none of that because I thought I was just a little smarter. I thought the rules didn't apply. And frankly, I thought I deserved it. And right then at that moment, when he left my office, I did that. And then actually, it was like my car was on autopilot to the liquor store, got the booze, went home, closed my bedroom door, told my husband what happened. He's a drug addict like me too. He was sober, but you know, someone's going to pull you down before you can pull them up. And that was the beginning. And it was like, gas to a bonfire. It got really bad and really scary really fast. And I think it's really important when people have a slip or a relapse or whatever you want to say, it's really important for them to go back and do the work to figure out what happened. Because there's no one, there's there's no one on the face of the earth that could have done my own sort of relapse autopsy. Because people never know you. They, they, they know what they see. They know what you say. But when I lay my head down on my pillow at night and it's just me and God, either I'm being rigorously honest or I'm not, that's black and white to me these days. Then it was very great. I love that I'm actually relieved that alcoholism is so versatile because, and I use the word that I use alcoholism to talk about me too everything, right? Because right. it's food, you know, food yeah, exercise, everything, everything. everything. I love that you thought that you had an alcohol problem, but not a cocaine problem because 
I could not get past the fact that I had a cocaine problem and I would separate out alcohol, right? Okay, cocaine is the problem, right? It's illegal, it gets you in trouble, it's a drug, blah, blah, blah. But alcohol, I'm too young to be an alcoholic. I'm too female to be an alcoholic. But the cocaine I could demonize, right? It's like, you know, and the drugs and the heroin and blah, blah, blah. I could demonize all that stuff. So you're like the total opposite of what? I was the opposite. But what I love in your example, you and I had the same exact thoughts in our relapse. It was, well, this is different. This is why I deserve it. Mine, mine was, you know, I deserve, I deserve alcohol. I deserve to have, you know, I've given up all these things. Why shouldn't I? And, and I'll just only do this one thing and then it won't get out of control after everything I've been through. I mean, don't you know, I gave up smoking and don't you know, and da, 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 da. don't you know what I've been through and yeah. all the things I deserve relief. And then picturing the relationship aspect of it, I'm picturing from my end, my husband coming home and starting to do, and if I'm not in a great place, that sounds like a great time to me. Like we could be in this together. Then I'm not by myself. Yes, we had so many plans. We're only going to drink and do drugs on the weekend together. The weekend's going to start Thursday night and it's going to end on Sunday night. And we're going to have the nanny here and the kids are going to the mall and they're going to get the cutest new tennis shoes. And what's the problem? Like, what's the big deal here? Well, I would think like people in the Northeast, they just send their kids off to boarding school for the whole year anyway. I'm gone three days. That's a crime. I mean, just so much, you know, just like rationalization. I mean, the stuff that my mind can tell me to protect this like cancer that's actively killing me is unbelievable. And I often talk about that with people. They're like, would you miss being a lawyer? I was like, I, the only thing I miss about being a lawyer, I love to help people. And when I was a lawyer, people get in trouble. They come in, they give me money. I tell them what to do. They nine times out of 10 will go and do it because they're scared. People come to me with like horrific drug problems, alcohol problems. They give me a bunch of money. I tell them what to do and they tell me to F off and I'm trying to ruin their life. Like that is alcoholism. Anybody that was trying to help me, they were the enemy. I was convinced that the Impaired Lawyers Division of the Bar Association, that this man was stalking me. He was doing his job, like trying to figure out if I was sober walking into the courtroom. And I was telling everybody, this is misogyny. I mean, it's crazy town. I mean, it's crazy town. One thing it isn't is a, a representation of how we feel about our loved ones. Amen. And, and I think that's very confusing. And I totally, I, it, it should be confusing. It's confusing for us, but it isn't an accurate representation of how we feel. It is an accurate representation of our ability to make sound decisions being hijacked. Yeah. I had a, a large financial amends to make to lots of clients that, I mean, and, and it was, it was never, it was never purposeful. There was no, you know, meanness or thief behind it. People come in to hire me. I would take their money. I would go use their money on alcohol and drugs. Their court date would come. I'm hungover. I forget about it. whatever. I'm basically not showing up for them. I'm, I'm stealing, right, from my clients. And so I had to go back and, and repay all that. My brain, my ability to process information and make decisions was hijacked. I look back now at some of the decisions that I made during that time, and I don't even think I can really classify them as a decision. It was just like one ping pong ball reaction, one thing to the next. and Right. I think the confusing part for people when you are a person who can speak well and has an education and 
at one time could have been credible is that we are able to convince people by using the same voice and the same body and the same face that we are the same person on the inside. No, really, you're just you're judging me because of my problem. You're this, you're that. And and unfortunately for everybody else, it's, it's very, very confusing. It reminds me of the this is the very millennial of me, but the men in black when the alien comes down and the guy and in, in takes into his body and he's drinking the sugar water and and the uh, the wife is like she knows something's wrong she knows it's not him but she it sounds like him and it looks like him and it's his body and you know what other explanation could there possibly be you know it talks in in, in literature about conceded to our innermost self that we were alcoholic and i remember thinking oh well that's a real relief because i thought i had a mental illness that was so bad that if anybody knew that, you know, the calls were coming from inside the house, that I would be put somewhere and never get out. Looking back, alcoholic thinking, alcoholic logic is indescribable. The last idea that I had was, and I actually told my counselor this at, at the, at the rehab, even though I was sober a few weeks at that point in time, my brain was still not my own. And I basically walked into her office and I said, okay, I'm going to stay here as long as you tell me I need to stay. I'm going to do everything you tell me to do. I'm going to not complain. I'm going to give it 100%, complete every assignment, never be late for a group. And if I do everything you say and you tell me I'm ready to go and I go and I drink again, that makes it your fault. And I'm going to go to Belize and drink dark rum until I die. Like very dramatic. Okay. Okay. First of all, I'm negotiating. There's nothing to (laughs) negotiate. Yeah, this lady doesn't give a flip where I live, right? But at that time, like it was like, this is the best idea. You know, this is the mountain I'm going to stand on. But thank God she didn't laugh or say something that I probably would have said if I'd been in her shoes and somebody else's me. But she just stuck out her hand and she was like, I'll take that deal. And for whatever reason, like it felt very serious to me. It felt very much like a contract, almost like a covenant, a little bit above a contract. And I did it. I did everything she said. And, and, you know, I mean, I think honestly, they say like, you know, when you get to be that desperate, you can have, you know, a blind monkey holding up flashcards of, of how to do the 12 steps. And all of a sudden they work, you know, because I was just ready and I was scared and I was tired of hurting and disappointing everyone and everything I loved, including myself, you know. It's a hard thing when you've been able to rely on your brain to make decisions, to set goals. Anything I set my mind to, if I was really, really, really wanted it, you know, I had the work ethic to do it. And when it came to alcohol, like I would make a decision every morning. I'm I'm not drinking today. And then about three or four o'clock that same day, I felt like I was starting to try to change my mind. Like, I mean, that was probably an overreaction. Only in retrospect can I see my mind, my willpower, making up my mind, making a commitment was of absolutely no avail. Because forever, I might have been out of options, but I have lots of ideas about how I could, you know, win this thing. But I was finally at that spot. And when she kind of committed to me to go on this journey with me, I don't know why, but something shifted and I just started to take suggestions. I can't tell you how much I relate to. I don't know how to deal with the fact that my brain has always been the thing 
that has helped me to get ahead in the world to manage and do things. And that suddenly with one topic or one grouping of decisions, that same asset is my not only a liability, but my biggest liability. And I'm supposed to discard my broken brain because I cannot fix my broken brain with my broken brain. And I'm supposed to go and operate from my heart and in this, this connection to this day, even, you know, 17 plus years later, it's a struggle for me. It, it, I go back to the logicking. I always go back to the logicking and then I, and then I remember, and then I bring in the mantras and I bring in the other things and I talk to the people and, and then I get there, but it's still, it, it still is so difficult to have your brain be an asset in every area of your life, except for this one piece that you want so badly. So bad. So bad. And, you know, it took me a long time to really understand. And and it was actually um, a medical director at a facility that explained it. You're not changing your mind. You're not. You're not. Because it, it feels like you're changing your mind. I was going to go to Wendy's and you know what? And half the day I'm going to go to McDonald's. I changed my mind. But it, under this set of circumstances, because you don't have control, because you are powerless, because, you know, the way that, that we process alcohol is different from the way that other people process alcohol, even within our bodies. And so when I began to understand, not only am I not changing my mind, but something that is inside of me that I don't know how to counter is changing my mind for me. And I'm taking action on that. And that seems so crazy. I could not wrap my mind around that. But still, even though I knew I was failing and I knew I couldn't trust my mind, it was still really hard to trust someone else to have a better idea about my life than me. So you have run treatment centers, you have, yeah. you know, you've been an attorney, you've spoke, you've done all these things. So many people do not believe, do not understand, cannot imagine that there are high functioning, high powered, successful people who have great jobs, who are in active alcoholism and addiction. From your perspective, having been at all ends of this spectrum, what do you think of when people talk about the fact that, you know, you can't have a good job and you can't be successful if you have active addiction? Well, the first thing that came to my mind is how could you imagine that unless you've experienced it? I think I probably would have been in that loud, judgy category if I hadn't, you know, literally walked through it. But to our sort of agreement earlier that if we think of this ism of alcoholism, what is it? What does that mean if it's an ism? Well, it's going to be something that changes the way you feel that you might understand that there might be consequences for, but the relief that you've experienced in the past somehow makes it worth it for you to do that Russian roulette. And the reason I, I say it that way is because I believe that whether it's genetic, whether it's, you know, trauma-based, whether it's, you know, adverse early childhood experiences, whatever it is, we have right now, and I've called it a pandemic, I've called it a tsunami of mental health crisis going on in this country that sometimes includes substance abuse, that sometimes doesn't include substance abuse. The question to ask is why are we here? Why are we, especially in the United States, a nation that is running as fast as we can from feeling pain? Can we begin to talk about why do we have problems with mass shootings, with, you know, a suicide rate that's off the chart, with the isolation that happened during the pandemic? 
you know, tripling, tripling the admissions into mental hospitals, right? Because it's not about the substance. It's about this nation is one that our system is broken and we are all in so much pain that we do anything we can to feel just a little bit of relief. Then when we sort of get caught, whatever happens, then if we're lucky, we start going down this path of recovery where we can find peace, where we can find security, where we can find community. So my question is this, how about if we just start admitting from the very beginning that we need community and and that we need help and really look at, you know, why are we as a people in this beautiful United States of America with freedom and justice and education and opportunities? If all that is true, then why are we the most medicated nation on the planet? There are a lot of people who are seeking relief, but not all people who are seeking relief are addicts or struggling with addiction. What are some of the ways that you explain the difference between the need and the cultivation of relief in a healthy way versus in an addictive way? I have a home in Costa Rica and um, I've been down going there for about 12 years to the Blue Zone. It's in Nosara. It's one of the Blue Zones. People live there to be over 100 and they do all these studies on it. And why? Because a lot of people don't have a lot of money there. And I learned so much from those people because they don't care about money. They don't care about, you know, wealth. They care about family. They take care of their elderly. They take care of their children together. I mean, this one family that I know down there, the grandmother's daughter had a baby and her son's wife had a baby about the same time. And I started asking questions like, what do you do with the baby here? You know, do they go to daycare? They don't even know what daycare is, Ashley. They don't know that because families take care of one another. They very rarely eat processed food. If we're having fish at their house, they caught it and they were, it was swimming three or four hours ago. It's just a different way of life and it's simpler and it's slower and it's not based on Louis Vuitton and Mercedes or whatever, right? That, listen, I'm guilty too, right? We get swept up into this. But I think like the maybe it's the older I get, the longer I'm sober, the longer I spend really studying my friends in Costa Rica is like, you cannot buy your way into peace. You can't. You cannot fake your way into peace. You cannot fake your way into a relationship with other people that you have spiritual consent with and with your higher power. When these two little babies were born, my friend takes care of one of the babies and the mother of the son's wife takes care of their baby. Anyway, my point is that it might not be forever. It might be for the next three months. They don't think in terms of, I can't take care of this baby for five years until it goes to school. They're very present. It's very pure vita, pure life. And I think that we can all really begin to take some lessons from that and start to really sort of unpack why we are in a nation with so much pain. I think one of the things that is really scary for people like us who are sober and we have kids and we're trying to model this behavior and thinking through, you know, how we share about our recovery, what's public, what's not, how we talked about substance use. You have taken your kids all the way through 18 at this point and they've they've witnessed addiction they've witnessed recovery they have also asked for help what's your experience with raising the next generation and as it relates to um, recovery and substance use 
Well, you know, one of the most painful things for me to think about is the the harm and the pain that I caused my children, you know, when I was active in my disease. And my older three children I had with my college sweetheart, who was also my best drinking buddy. And we split up and he actually ended up, he, he died of suicide, but really he died of alcoholism. And that was in 2011 that happened. But, you know, my, my kids had seen me from 2002 to 2008 be in that really dark place of it's going to be okay. Mom's drinking again. She's going back to detox. She's going, you know, I mean, and they're teenagers, they're embarrassed, they're in, you know, junior high school and, and all those things. And of course I've made amends to them and, and I have a great relationship with all the kids these days. And my oldest three, you know, came to me when they were in their early twenties and, and told me that they were struggling and, and they were all three in, in recovery today. And I'm really proud of them for that. But if I'm able to find like the silver lining, because they saw me struggle, they were hurt. But because they saw me never give up, they were encouraged. And they had the language to ask me for help. I didn't even start thinking about being an alcoholic till I was like so far gone that it it was really scary. And I'm just grateful that um, that they know about it, that they know about the genetic component, that they don't feel shame. They didn't feel shame when they called me to ask for help. They didn't feel like they had to hide it. When I like think of my life and like, you know, things that I did right. One of the things that I think that I did pretty daggum right is to talk to them honestly about my struggle. And I kept explaining to them, my relapsing is not an indication of me not loving you. And there were lots of tears and it was really hard. And they they heard me. But when they experienced it themselves, they really understood. You know, they really understood that it wasn't personal. And I'm really grateful for that. And, and again, that goes back to what I was saying about my alcoholism was so out loud, it couldn't be ignored. So then the same thing happened with my dad. And, you know, he, he lives in Austin now and um, he's been sober living with us for about five years. And that's another example of community, of family. Because he had had like a 300 acre farm in South Georgia and he's like riding his lawnmower around all by himself, drinking a fifth of Jack Daniels or whatever. I don't know. You know, at some point in time, I think that we have to acknowledge that we need each other. Yeah, the loneliness is so bad for our physical health. Forget mental health. It's atrocious for our mental health, but for our physical health, it's very, very damaging. And the uh, Surgeon General came out and not that they're the, you know, end all be all of health, but if they're saying it, you know, it's really bad that we have an epidemic of loneliness. And what that means is what that means is that we, our health is going to rapidly decline. People die as a result of loneliness, people's substance abuse, people's mental health, people take their own lives. There's so many loneliness is like you said, this precursor. And it's, it's so important to remember that substance use is the symptom of all of, of whatever's underneath. It's like a dental care being considered separate, dental and vision being separate from your health insurance, right? It's like, well, wait, they're in my face. They're next to my sinuses. If I go to an ENT, they're, you know, they're looking in my throat. That's right next to my teeth. Are they not connected? Well, that's substance use and mental health. Somehow we've decided to separate these two things, but I don't know a single person who wasn't experiencing some depression and anxiety who had substance use issues. <laughs> 
Absolutely. No what, even if they caused it themselves, it was there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even if I like, you know, invited the trauma into my life based on my lifestyle, I still have trauma. Right. It is so prevalent and and people do not understand that you just because you aren't seeing me drinking, you aren't seeing my life spiral out of control doesn't mean that you have the whole story. Exactly. I think as a mother, I think as a woman, I think as, you know, a professional for all these reasons. My hope is always when I'm talking about this, I don't do it for entertainment purposes. You know, I really do it because I feel like this is sort of part of my service work. If I can have, you know, a platform to talk about the truth about addiction, pain, family, I mean, all the different components. I just feel like the more we can talk about it, the more normalized it is. Because when you can normalize something and you can own it, then there's no room for shame. I, I did a thing, I did a talk on the on the steps of the Capitol in Austin several years ago. And afterward, I don't know how it got on there, but somebody put it on YouTube and, and somebody called me like, I don't I don't even remember the, the situation, but they were like, how did you have the nerve to stand on the, the steps of the Capitol in Austin, Texas and say, you're an alcoholic? And I said, because I am an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And if I own it and I own my stuff and I own the bad decisions and I own the financial ruin and, and you know, making great decisions, making bad decisions, here's the freedom. I am an open book. I am absolutely as transparent as I can be. Hell, it's 2023. You can find out anything you want me about me in 15 minutes on the Google. You know what I mean? So it's like, I might as well embrace this, you know, to the extent that I can do some good with whatever happened to me and whatever I am comfortable sharing. I mean, talk about taking the wind out of the negative sail. You know what I mean? Because then it's all positive. For sure. It, it, it is very disarming. And I always giggle to myself about how if you're going to hold stuff against me that I did nearly 20 years ago while I was drinking and using, when I have this more than a decade long track record of something else, then I, I don't know what else I can do. You know, if, And I often think to myself, gosh, I'm more embarrassed about the things that I did well, I've been sober. <laughs> now that is true. You There's, know, I, I, if I'm going to have to clean something up, it, it's helpful and more comfortable if you have an excuse. Right. Like, like I was drinking, uh, you know, whatever. Right. I didn't know I wasn't paying attention. But when I say something like really nasty to my husband and then I have to apologize later, you're like, nope, that was, uh, in, yeah, it's fully sober. Fully sober, 100% present and did not pause for an instant before I let you have it. That's human. That's being a human being. I think to the extent that we can really, really serve up as much grace in relationships as we would like to receive, you know, my sponsor always says, you know, it's like, I want justice for what they did, but I want mercy for what I did. When it's the same thing, that becomes a little uncomfortable, you know? Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then just, you know, I was talking to someone about this the other day where somewhere along the way, and I think we all did because I, because I hear it from everybody is that we have this feeling that we are owed comfort, that comfort should be the baseline, that comfort is, that it is, is our right. And I find it really interesting because so much of life, even the best parts of life, childbirth, family, all sorts of things are not comfortable, even growing, right? Like you have growing pain 
gains, you get taller, you get what, what a puberty, all these things, all these transitions from one part of life to the next, they're not without discomfort, sometimes even acute pain. And so I don't know how we came to this idea that discomfort is always a bad thing. It's not, it's a transition, it's a change, and it's a normal part of life and growth. And I have to remind myself on a regular basis, you know, I'm like, oh, this is uncomfortable. Oh, this, you know, conversation with my kids or explaining something or whatever it is, this, I feel discomfort. My brain feels discomfort and goes, 911, we're in danger. This is not good. Hi, stop it, stop it, stop it. Yeah, stop, 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 (laughs) right? And I, the training I I work on, and sometimes the training is just picking up the phone and calling someone I know who's going to say, hey, dumbass, you aren't owed comfort. It's okay. And the beauty of that community, like, like we were talking about, is that I don't have to always rely on my brain to do anything but pick up the phone or anything but go talk to my community in order to bring me back to whatever baseline truth reality I need in that moment. If I am relying on Ashley to remind me that I am not owed discomfort, I don't know what percentage of the time I'm going to be able to rewire those messages. But I know if I call three different people in my community who live the same way by the same guidelines and principles that I do, that I will be given the opportunity for redirection and then given the opportunity to remember. And and that's part of why the community piece is so important because then you're not just relying on you being able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps at every moment. Tell me about what you're doing now and the, the program that you have coming up. Now I sold the majority of the stock with the healthcare system that I'd been working on for the past 13-ish years. And now I just opened a brand new program that is focusing more on mental health. And it's it's pretty exciting because one of my best friends that I grew up with, one of my best drinking buddies growing up, I was going to law school at the same time she was going to med school and she was um, a high-risk OBGYN for 20-something years. And about five years ago, she went back and got a fellowship in integrative medicine. And we stay in contact and we've been talking and we're, I was, you know, using Using her to look at some hormone issues I started having when I turned 50 and all the things. And anyway, we just started talking about how integrative medicine could be so much more utilized when it comes to mental health. And so we had this idea to start a program. It's called Amend Wellness. It's in um, right outside of Austin. And we've only been open about two weeks. It is a program that really is focusing on, you know, depression, anxiety, bipolar, seeking a diagnosis, feeling like your family member might have the wrong diagnosis. There's certainly, you know, people there that have been medicating their symptoms of their mental health and, you know, sort of dedicated 50% toward the Western medicine that we know works, tried and true, psychiatrists, great medications, med management, that kind of thing. But we also are doing half the program dedicated to really teaching clients the different ways that they can help and sort of take control and responsibility for their diagnosis. Yes, take your medication, but let's talk about your genetics and what sunlight does for you and what cold plunge does for you and how you can use infrared sauna to really begin to regenerate cellular levels and you know, all different things like that. We've got the yurt with the sound bath meditation and just some really cool things that that are part of the program. Also, 
the chef that we hired, I had worked with him in treatment years ago, and he's also in recovery. And he has a whole nutritional system that's based on like basically like anti-inflammatory types of foods. Because one of the things that happens, whether it's just poor nutrition, whether it's, you know, poor hygiene, whether it's alcohol, whether it's just organic, you know, problems um, from a mental health perspective, but the inflammation that can be caused and exacerbate those conditions through diet is is something that I'm still learning a lot about. But basically at Amend, we're doing great diagnostic work. We're doing tons of, of education about different ways that people can manage their illness. And, you know, one of the things I always say is your diagnosis is not the definition of you. Yes, I was diagnosed at some point in time as primary substance use disorder. Yes, but that is so not the definition of Marcia Stone and who I am today and what I have the ability to do and what I'm interested in doing and how I can take care of myself. Because I think for me, everything started to change when I realized I can take responsibility for my recovery. And we're telling them the very same thing when it comes to, yes, you may be prone to depression. Let's talk about what we can do to make sure that that can be managed in your life as effectively as it possibly can so that you can live the life that you deserve to live and that your family can have the wife or the mom or the, you know, whatever, sister or daughter that they deserve for you to be. And so it's really just a very new program. I just had this idea and I, I worked on it for about a year, creating the program with some really smart people. And I'm excited about that. Amend Wellness is the first program in a platform that I started called Foundation Stone Family of Programs. And the reason I chose chose that, I always say it's not because my last name is Stone, but if that's the way you remember it, then, you know, good on me. In our literature, you've, I'm sure you know this, it says um, helping others is the foundation stone of our recovery. And one of the things that I have always found, no matter how bad I'm feeling, no matter what kind of day I've had, no matter what fear is haunting me, as much as I can take all that sort of self-focused thought and focus it toward helping others, the relief that I get from helping other people and the joy that I get and the peace and the serenity is unmasked. I've never had a drink or any kind of substance in my body or engage in any kind of activity that even begins to hold a candle to the way I feel when I know that my experience and, and my ideas and my drive and, and you know being able to put together these different programs. When I see people help, I feel like I've won the lottery every day. I'm an entrepreneur. I'd like to create programs and create events and create workbooks or whatever that are going to go out there and help people because I could not have done it without people taking some time to design things that helped me. And now I feel like I've got a very clear sort of bird's eye view about what we need and what we need and continue to need to begin to address in, in a meaningful way the, the pain and the suffering that, that people are, are walking through these days. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, you're amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you if they want to learn more? I have a website, marciastone.com. You can reach me if you want to email me, marcia at marciastone.com. Um, amend Wellness. I think it's amendwellnessaustin.com is is the website for the program here. And just stay tuned, you know, um, Foundation Stone is the platform. Amend is the first program that we're doing. And then maybe when we open, I can't say the second program right now, but I'll check back with you in a few months and uh, maybe we can talk about that because it's, it's, I can say it's going to be a women's only program. 
And I feel strongly about um, some people needing gender-specific programs for a number of reasons. So we can talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate your time. And thank you for having me. It's been great. And again, I'm so glad I met you now. I think that we can do a lot of good together. And yes, God knows we didn't need to meet, you know, 17 (laughs) years ago. Thank you. Thank you again. It's been great. Have a great day. So I want to jump in with what I related to most and what I felt very connected to. And I felt like there are these moments where people pull the words out of your mouth and describe your experience. And she pulled the words out of my mouth and described the experience of having a smart, fast working brain that you've used to achieve other things that you set goals and you execute on goals and you can do all these things and move in the world. It's an asset for all intents and purposes. And then there's this one thing that you want so much and your brain, that, that intelligence, that speed of you know neural connections completely fails you. And yet you can't help but continue to try the same thing over and over again because you literally have only known this one thing to work. You use your brain to make it work. And none of the logic, none of the project management, none of the switching from vodka to wine or wine to vodka or drinking on the weekends only or cocaine only from Colombia or whatever the fucking <laughs> you know situation <laughs> is that you've decided is going to solve this problem problem. Nothing works, no matter how badly you want. I have never in my life experienced something so intensely defeating as wanting something with every cell in my body and not being able to achieve it. Yeah. You just like can't trust the thing that has been your protector, your success, your whatever. I mean, anytime that you have something where you can't trust your reality or you can't trust the information your brain is giving you. Like, And then especially for someone who's a high achiever who leads with that, what are you supposed to do with that? Like, It's your tool. It's the thing that's supposed to get you out of the situation and it can't. It's like putting on the virtual reality goggles and going out to grab something and it's and every time you reach for it, it's not like nothing happens. But other than using your vision and seeing through this prism of these goggles, what else are you going to do? That's all you know how to do. So you just keep grabbing it and you keep, you know, you keep doing the same thing or maybe you walk towards it and all the things and none of it works, right? And in this shitty analogy, you take, what you have to do is actually take off the virtual, like you have to leave the game and, you know, listen to use your ears to listen to what other people are telling you and then do that. But it doesn't make sense because what you're, what you're used to doing is operating within this game and it's always worked. It's always been effective. And suddenly with the one thing you have to have, all the stakes are on this, you know, if you don't get sober, if you don't figure this out, if you don't stop making these really terrible decisions, everything is going to fall apart. It is a feeling like no other. When we talk about in 12 step, when we talk about powerlessness, that moment of using, of drinking and using against my own will, of making a decision and then not being able to keep it moments later. Literally, I had a bottle of wine in my closet and I would take a sip and then I would leave the closet and I would go do whatever the fuck I was doing. And I was like, that's it, no more for the day or whatever. And then I'd be like, well, just just one more. So I'd go back to the closet and I'd have another sip. This charade would go on all day. I 
would put it back into the closet behind the clothes with every intention of leaving it there and not having any more. And within however long it was, depending on the time, I always went back. I mean, some people would just bring the bottle of wine out of the closet and drink it like a normal person. But I, you know, I'm like, well, you, you got to keep it in this private place. Well, you were covering with the clothes so that like, yeah. it's sort of like when you hide your wallet in at the beach and you hide it in the back of your shoe, you know what uh-huh, I mean? Like exactly. you, you think you're not going to look there, you know, it's the same sort of thing. If it's in the closet, if it's behind exactly. the clothes, like exactly. how are you supposed to find that again? Never going to find it again. And then I find it again every 10 minutes. <laughs> And I put it back. I mean, it's pretty solid logic, I have to say. Did you try disguising it as other things? Like, oh, you bet. Putting a little hat on it or, you know. (laughs) So many little hats on my wine bottles. I, I, you know, I logic, I logic all the things I, I tried it all, but it just ultimately you end up back in the same place or actually you end up in a worse place because by the time you get to the end of that rope, that like trying to control it rope, you're so pissed and so defeated. You're like, screw it. And now you're drinking out of a box of wine. The analogy, like the thing I keep picturing in my head is like those dumb team builders they have you do at corporate events. And they're like, put the blindfold on and your teammates going to navigate you through the maze. I was thinking of it, but it's as if it's like now the maze is covered in broken glass and, Uh you know, Uh barbed wire, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a fire pit of some kind somewhere, you know, and they're like, yeah. And they're like, okay, let's start the team builder. They're going to lead you out of this one. Just listen to everything they say and pay really close attention to your teammate. And you're going to find it's like, yeah, well, who's signing up for that? I know my eyes work just fine. Thank you. And if I'm walking through this, my eyes are the only things I'm going to trust. But they're they're not giving you the correct information. Uh, and it's not usually a person you know that well, even in recovery. Like it's not usually. a. So you I mean, the whole thing is is so I love how she, she's like, you got to be at the you got to be out of ideas, the, the intersection between out of ideas and out of options. And that, that's when you're willing to do the Spartan race, right? Where that's, you know, the, the barbed wire and the broken glass and the fence and the whatever and all this shit. And in this case, they blindfold you. Otherwise, if you still have ideas or you still have options, you're not doing that. And that is insane. That's an insane thing to do is to not use your your intellect or your brain and to just follow these other people. Like it feels like brainwashing. It feels like a cult. What the fuck? This is terrible. I've now I've gone and done it. I remember getting into, you know, treatment and sobriety and, and all the all the things getting into that community and going, man, I thought it was bad before. This is the pit of hell. I have reached the moment. We're holding hands. We're talking about (laughs) feelings. We're talking about our problems. I was like, does it get worse than this? Because this feels like the actual pit of hell. I want to jump out a window. (laughs) There was nothing I wanted less than to talk to a bunch of people about my feelings, tell them shit about me, hold their hand, say a prayer. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And this was like, what was in front of me as the solution to my heroin and alcohol addiction. I was just, it was truly unimaginable to me how this was Which going is to help. great that holding hands was the, how you led that. I was real. <laughs> Can't we just it. have sex or something? I don't want to hold I'm your hand. percent. <laughs> and let me tell you, for those of you listening, 
Don't do it in your home group. Just saying. <laughs> Out of your county is pretty good too. Well, we are rooting for you this week. We hope this week is wonderful for you that uh, maybe after you get done with this episode, you go and do something for yourself really nice. Ashley, anything that you want to leave the people with? Yes. If you want to hear more about what Marsha is doing, check out Marsha, M-A-R-S-H-A, Stone, S-T-O-N-E.com. Have a great week. We'll see you soon. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.